With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. One plunges deep into Mexican waters, reaching astounding depths without the aid of a breathing apparatus. The other has the distinction of being the very first Latina to serve as the athletic director of a D1 college. This week, we championed the trailblazers among us, the people forging ahead and kicking doors wide open. Camila Haber was pretty much born into the water. She adores the feel and the freedom it affords. Her passion in life is using her sport to raise awareness about the fragility of this seemingly abundant resource. Irma Garcia is the AD at St. Francis College in Brooklyn. Her mission is not just to maintain sports success, but to be a mentor and sponsor to the next generation. She is determined that her status as a pioneer never means she is the last. The two are doing all they can to make this world better, and they are using sports to do just that. We begin first with Camila Haber and the power and liberty that comes with knowing how to hold your breath. This is the Enfuego Podcast. island in the Gulf of Mexico. It's an um, island that is basically its main economic income is through petroleum, but anyway, we moved to this area of the country, to the Yucatan Peninsula, and most specifically into nearby Tulum and Playa del Carmen, in between. So I was uh, for a long time doing a lot of swimming as I, when I was uh, small and I did a lot of water sports, including scuba diving. But I still uh, I felt that something was missing. You know, I enjoyed it, but it was not my passion. You know, so I was still looking for another sport. I did a little bit of surfing, windsurfing, and everything. And then, uh, by coincidence, my father met uh, someone that did free diving. So I discovered the sport because I don't, didn't even knew the sport. So then I discovered that there was something very similar to being a mermaid, no? Of course, my dream was to be a mermaid and to enjoy the water with this uh, freedom. And then I then I discovered freediving. I did my first um, introductory course, kind of a discovery. And I got, and I was impressed by the physiology behind the sport, that there's a mammalian diving reflex that it's called uh, these kind of series of mechanisms that happen in our body that allow us to be holding our breaths and diving to these depths and I did very well in my first dives I enjoyed the dives I was amazed by the feelings uh, like I kind of curiosity grew inside me when I saw this amount of water above me. And then I just got, got hooked up by the sport and continue my uh, like education through the sport. Explain to someone, I guess, who's never free dove 
the yeah. feeling because uh, I'm I'm sure it's completely different than scuba diving where it's it's what is that what does it feel like what is does it feel dangerous does it feel liberating does it what is the feeling uh, actually the interesting thing about free diving is that it's considered uh, I think the only extreme sport I say extreme because I don't really consider extreme but it could be extreme for some people <laughs> that is not driven by adrenaline so you have to be actually on the opposite side of your feelings you have to be in a very relaxed mood almost a meditative meditative state in which you're not thinking a lot you are very focused on the present on the feeling and then doing a dive well it, there's different stages at the beginning uh, you have to be very careful in what in where your head is and how your movements are through the water and then there's a stage that we call free fall in which you stop moving and now you're just sinking into the depths of the ocean so that part is very uh, relaxing but very thrilling at the same time because with no effort you're sinking to the bottom and you're going to get to the point where you have to turn of course but there's a increasing of the of pressure there is a uh, blue, uh, the color blue is very present. You open your eyes a bit and you're surrounded by blue. There's this uh, silence or this kind of um, sound of the ocean that is surrounding you. Uh, it's a very surreal experience, honestly. So I would, really, I would describe it as something very relaxing, but also that it puts your senses into challenge you know you have to be very careful in where your thoughts are how you are feeling the water because of course you have to be very uh, conscious of how your body is feeling so you create a very intimate relationship on on your sense with your senses and your body i don't know if i left myself clear there <laughs> yeah i guess in that regard, I guess you you, you yeah. lessen the danger because you know your body and you know when you need to surface. So, and that comes with experience, I guess. Yeah, and training, sure, 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 and training. So, it's it's of course a very slow and progressive training. So, in order to do a deeper dive, you have to have done a uh, uh, of no less than two meters, you know? So I have to do a very good 50-meter dive in order to go into a 52-meter dive. So it's very progressive, and depending on each dive, you decide how to move forward. But you have to be, of course, very careful. You don't you do not do big jumps. You uh, try and do it very slow and very progressively. And then I guess how many years have you been doing it? And then how long and how deep can you can you dive now? So, so I've been doing it since I'm 16 years old. So I, I when I was little and then I'm 24 now. <laughs> so I've been almost eight years doing the sport. And I started doing it a recreational kind of a for like my week, my weekend activity and then 
Then I did my instructor course when I was 19 and then started venturing into the competition world at 19. And But at the same time, I started university, so things got a bit complicated. But I got to my deepest. I've done uh, my national record is for 56 meters without fins and I've done the deepest I've been it's 70 meters but free immersion that is pulling down the rope a rope that we use as a guide got you it's because I'm yeah. guessing there's a danger of getting lost and then kind of not knowing where the surf you get disoriented I'm guessing see kind of and also so you can uh, kind of follow a straight line right because it's different to do a kind of like to swim horizontally and vertically instead of doing a, a straight line down and straight line up. So this is this rope is a guide and if also you are attached to it and it's a, a safety protocol also. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm. And if you don't mind, just take me through one of your recent. Well, um, I guess it would be, take me to the dive that, that we saw on PBS because that was just fascinating okay. to me. What yeah. goes what goes through your thoughts as you're about to dive? Because you looked very calm, where you would think you mm-hmm. would you would take a big breath, but you kind of were very calm. And then and then about the hydrogen yeah. sulfide, I didn't quite get how dangerous that was. And if you just take me through the process, <laughs> what you were on that day, I guess. Yeah, sure. So. This, this is a cenote, it's, it's called cenote angelita, the one that has this this cloud on the bottom. And it's a cenote I go frequently because it it's, has a big uh, open space, so it's very nice to teach freediving and also to train freediving. So for this kind of dive, they, they were a bit longer than regular because I was we were, of course, filming and then I was meant to go into the cloud and out of the cloud so yeah so it was a big a bit more challenging dive than regulars or at least regulars that are shallow um the cloud is at 25 27 meters mm-hmm. of depth so before a dive you have to uh, get your body relaxed you have to be in the surface trying to calm your thoughts trying to keep a very good um, breathe up so you are not uh, over breathing or under breathing so you have to keep a very good breathe up uh, when we have uh, some timings so we are so I have so we have kind of a order for safety with my safety divers and with the camera person so we do keep kind of a countdown so when the countdown is closed, to starting, I start um, putting a, a bit more attention. So I, I do an extra effort on keeping my mind uh, calm, but ready to start uh, taking cer- certain steps to start the dive. And then I do a final uh, breath, uh, a big long one, as you can see on the on the video, and I do a, a qualis- pre-qualification with my ears, in which I blow air to my eustachian uh, tubes, so my so I uh, prequalize my ears, so they get ready for pressure, and then I start. I do a dog dive, and I start thinning down. And in Angelita, the first meters, 
are a bit murky, so you don't see the bottom from the surface. So it's very interesting because once you reach 15 or 20 meters, you can start seeing this island that is created by this um, sulfhydric acid around the around a bunch of of uh, trees and leaves. So you you get to 15 to 20 meters, and then it, this opens, and you see when I would see some lights coming from the camera. I would see the safety divers around. So I would start making my way through the branches of the trees. I would get uh, prepared. I would make be very conscious of how I'm feeling, if I'm okay, if this life is going well, because maybe if I didn't have any troubles coming down, so okay, everything is going okay. So I get to this branch, I let go, and I dive into this cloud. Everything goes pitch black, <laughs> but I try, <laughs> yeah, I try not going very deep into it, because I, then I because I'm already sinking, so I have to be very conscious of my buoyancy so I don't go too deep, no? Even this black space, because you lose kind, you can lose kind of orientation, no? And then I come out of the cloud, and then I, and you go from black to seeing a little bit more, and then I start swimming up. I start swimming up, and I start leaving this cloud behind. Yeah, so it's a very... Uh, mystical scenery, right? It's beautiful and there's a lot of uh, different uh, place of light happening, so it's I enjoy it very much. And then you reach the surface, the light comes, the light uh, is uh, brighter, of course, because you reach the surface, you, I have to take a, be very conscious of my, of my breaths so I do what we call recovery breaths in which I uh, suck air in and kind of keep it inside my head for a little while or inside my mouth and then release slowly so we just do a couple of recovery breaths just to be sure and not to just to be sure that I'm feeling okay and then and then that's it I signal my safety driver that I'm okay in the surface and then that's it. <laughs> no, it's it's fascinating, and it's really just a beautiful process, too. Oh, yes, yes, yes. How, how yes. long can you stay down now? Well, um, in competitive dives, uh, this, the that are a bit deeper, no? So this layer is like at 27, 30 meters, but in competition, we do... Uh, deeper dives, so 56, 60, 70. Uh, the dives are around are around 2 minutes, 30, 3 minutes. Oh, wow, wow. But the, the breed-up is long also. So the the time you're preparing for the dive oh, okay. is long. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, yeah. Because you said your body actually, you've trained your body, and there, there's basically a process that it's kind of, you said it's changed, I guess, where you can, you're able to adapt to be able to, to, to hold your breath this long. See, see, see. So, so there's different things that happen. One of the main ones is that your heartbeat slows down. 
your heartbeat slows down, the, there's something called vasoconstriction, where the capillarities on your extremity on your extremities kind of limits the flow of blood, so they focus on your vital organs, okay. and that's and that's why you go into a kind of a, a anaerobic uh, performance. Gotcha. So yeah, so but it's it's basically so you can be at this depth and also so you can withstand the pressure. No, there's a a certain protection on your lungs. It's impossible to be this immersed in something and not fall in love with it. Haber is particularly close to water, seeing the beauty with the liberated eye of someone not tethered to a breathing apparatus. But it also means she's remarkably close to the effects humankind has had on this plentiful resource, a resource we are all quickly turning into an endangered entity. All that after the break. And then the other the other main point I want to get to as well is is your your dedication and your passion I guess it seems like is, is ocean conservation or sea conservation. Can you explain I guess um, what's what's behind that? Yeah, sure. So my my main focus is water resources as as now you know. So I was when I I started doing free diving where when I was young, and in between I had to uh, choose my career. And of course I was uh, inclined to choosing marine biology because we would all love to be <laughs> a biologist, just studying marine species. Right. But then as I grew up in the Yucatan Peninsula, in my lifespan, I've seen the threats that the uh, underground rivers are facing. Mm. So there's a lot of uh, things I can can damage them because they are very vulnerable and they're very fragile. And at the end, they all finish or they, they are all flow into the ocean. So then I decided to take this side of, of the um, subject and go and choose a water resources as a major. Mm. And I did uh, an, an engineering a career on innovation for sustainability and I majored in water resources, and I'm also I'm always uh, very involved with all the projects that are being um, done in the area to learn more about what is happening in these underground rivers, the relationship with their other ecosystems that are nearby, of course, the relationship that they have with the people that are with the civilization that is above them in the past, in the present. 
and yeah, I've done I, I've done a lot of uh, projects that are related to either uh, water treatment of um, new pollutants. I've done also uh, how can we give value or uh, or find value in treating our waters correctly, and also some projects on how to distribute water efficiently. And I'm I just finished my university and I'm starting to consider what I'm going to do for my masters. And I'm also uh, trying to find a balance between my sports career and my professional career. So I'm on on just in that stage. <laughs> I guess how dire or what is what is occurring? I guess in these underwater um, um, rivers and, and, and kind of um, how the depletion of water. Yeah. yeah. So well, of course, in in the broad spectrum, water is vital for our society. Of course, uh, we need water for our daily activities, and I think we haven't given the appropriate value to it and how and how connected everything, all ecosystems are and how everything revolves about, around water. So definitely on the general um, idea, we have to take better care of our water, drive innovation towards how are we going to clean our waters correctly, more efficiently, what are we putting into our uh, water systems, and more specifically in the Yucatan Peninsula, we have a big challenge because the Yucatan Peninsula is made out of limestone. So it's a very porous uh, rock that is formed throughout the peninsula. So that's why cenotes and caverns are made. But the problem is that water filters very easily. And if the and if waters are not treated properly, the everything uh, filters and ends up in our water systems. And we have a big threat when fertilizers and pesticides are entering uh, or are coming into the land because when they flood, they flood and reach these ecosystems. So this has, a, of course, a big impact on our water resources, but it also has a huge impact on our marine ecosystems because everything eventually flows into the ocean. So it's a big challenge, but there's a lot of uh, work going for, uh, towards it. So... And yeah. are, are you seeing that firsthand, any kind of effects as you're free diving through the cenotes and everything? Are you seeing any kind of effects? Yeah. There, yeah. What are you seeing, I guess? Yeah. So, yeah. So it, I, I, as I've been diving in the area for, uh, for eight years and I, it's been uh, in certain occasions I have, I, it's had uh, one of my favorite cenotes that I used to go often because it's near my house. At some point, you couldn't dive in it because it was getting flooded by by wastewater. Mm. So it's something that is already present and happening, no? And also the big um, impact, well, yeah, so cenotes that are getting polluted on a daily basis, that we don't know how much water is coming out from them, how much water is putting into them. And also the big threats that our coral systems, coral reef systems are having. There's a lot of bleaching happening. And some people, well, there's it's not confirmed, but some people attribute this to uh, poor uh, wastewater management. So it's something that is already happening and it's not in the future, no? 
Mm-hmm. So this is why it's it's becoming important to tell this story. Irma Garcia was born and raised in Brooklyn. The term it takes a village takes on a whole new meaning with a woman who picked up the game of basketball by tossing a ball off the side of street signs. She would eventually learn the intricacies of the sport, earn the name Speedy Garcia, and become the athletic director of St. Francis College, a distinction that is the first for a Latina at a D1 school. In just a few moments of listening to her, you realize that the passion she has for the sport and her community are undeniable. It's early there, huh? Uh, it is, um, but not as early when you have two little boys. So, uh. <laughs> God bless. Congratulations, two little ones. Yes, yes, and they're they're phenomenal. Always ready oh, to run out. Uh, that's awesome. So awesome. Well, very nice to meet you. Nice. I don't know. I mean, my hair. I haven't had oh. a haircut. I'm like a hot mess. I first time putting on a suit. Saying, "Oh my gosh, I gotta go back on a diet." I know always something I guess kind of jumping in is uh where did it all begin <laughs> you know what, what was your what was your upbringing um was it always sports oriented um um what was it like growing up and where did you grow up so I so my mom is from Mayagüez Puerto Rico and daddy's from puppy's from uh Santuice. And so um, mommy's from, you know, like almost up in the, in the, you, you consider Catskills, right? From New York and daddy's from the hood, like, you know, so that you got a little bit of both. So mommy would say something like, uh, uh, ceja la puerta and daddy would say, tranca la puerta. So we got, I got a little bit of everything. So when they came to New York, they met in New York. Um, they have eight beautiful kids. I'm one of eight. The seven girls and one boy were all a year apart. And um, after the seventh, they, they tried one more time to have another boy and they had another girl. And she has been the most uh, uh, engaging, I should say. Uh, so they ended up stopping after that. Um, we're all very close. Um, I consider them my best friends. I actually just brought mommy back from Florida. Daddy passed away six years ago. They would have had their 64th um, anniversary on September 3rd. Mm. But so we're brought up in this area called the South side of Williamsburg. And now it's like trendy, but it was predominantly Puerto Rican. Um, and uh, we grew up there and right behind the St. Peter and Paul, which was a church, which was a school. My daddy didn't trust anybody having seven girls and one boy. Um, so he built in his backyard, in our backyard, we had everything we wanted, like swings, uh, like a go-kart kind of thing. It was incredible. My dad was hands-on. He, he did that part-time as a carpenter, but he, was a, uh, he worked for the post office all his life. And mommy worked as a special ed teacher. Um, and she, after I started to get into college, she, she went ahead and uh, went to college herself and got her associate. So she's one of those... Um, you know, not exactly their teacher, but the person who helps uh, in the public school um, and has an incredible, I mean, I grew up having family all the time. I mean, our, our I, I always thought like my cousins were my brothers and my sisters because there was so many people at the house. And, you know, I mean, I was the third, I am the third oldest. And so there was always somebody else coming and I'm like, what the heck is this? Another one? Wait, all right. Okay. And then 
I, I'll never forget Paquito is my cousin, uh, Frank in, in English, Francisco. Um, and I, for a long time, thought he was my oldest brother. And to find out he's just my cousin. But, you know, that's how it is. In, in, in Hispanic world, we just grow up together. Um, we, we, we always invite people. And it's been like that for as long as I've known. In fact, our immediate family is about 75 deep. So you could just imagine people say, this is crazy. You know, it's like, a, like it's almost might as well buy a hall, but you don't. You make it work. And most of the time we're all in the kitchen because you want your hokum gandules, you want your penne, and you want to make sure that you're the first one to get it because you're not sure you're going to get something at the end. So um, it's, and it's funny, like my dad, we used to call him the soup Nazi because you just get in line. And if you said a word, you got to go to the back of the line. So, I mean, we were the ones who first started that. I, I just, as long as I remember, my dad was always like, uh, mm, la boca. Irma Garcia worked and trained tirelessly in school and on the court. The latter she kept from her father, a man she adored, but wasn't sure as to how he felt about her playing basketball. At her high school graduation, there was no more hiding her hard work. Administrators called her name and the scholarship she earned to play ball. His reaction was immediate and quite visible. All that after the break. story with St. Francis is uh, a unique one. I, I mean, I'm a student athlete there. I, I remember um, when I got the scholarship to play basketball and I was so afraid because, you know, I mean, they only knew, my parents only knew that girls have to be in the kitchen and guys work. And so he didn't even know I was playing basketball. And because high school back then, you didn't play that much. You only played like three times a week, you know, and so it was easy to hide it. And plus I worked at the A&P store. So I'm always like, I still brought some money home. So they didn't care. Mm-hmm. As long as you were bringing something to, to pay for some of your books and things like that. So, I mean, I received the scholarship and I was so scared they were going to get mad at me. And, and, and uh, I remember it was the first time I ever saw my dad cry. And so I was like, Phew! you know, and, you know, I was so nervous, but he was so proud of me. Um, and so my dad and I really were really close because I, my life lessons have been from him. My heart, what I give with my heart has been from my mother. She's the sweetest woman you're ever going to meet. She's going to be a saint. I mean, working with special ed plus raising eight kids and she would bring them home. So because they, she felt that they weren't going to get the proper care. So we always took care of special ed kids. Um, it, it's, it's incredible. Um, you know, you said back at the, back in those days, you know, um, girls didn't play sports, you know, um, mm-hmm. um, or at least, you know, you thought that maybe your, your father might have some sort of pushback on that. Right. Where did where did the love of sports begin? Um, where did your love of basketball begin then? And and um, how did you get to play it? And, and where did it where did that start? So going back to the large family. Right. So. When my dad always took us to baseball games and he always watched basketball. He watched sports. So he was, he was an avid sports fan. Um, his 
Brooklyn Dodgers, of course, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but we always played, it was the Garcias against everybody else. And so I'm a lefty, so I had to put a glove. I, you know, back then they didn't really have lefty gloves for people. To throw. I'm a true lefty. The only thing I could do with my right hand is a layup. And so, um, so we played. And I remember being the catcher or playing first base. That's all they would let me because that's how it was back then. Um, and so we played basketball. And I know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with New York City or Brooklyn, but they have the, you know, parking signs um, on the sides where it says uh, alternate side parking. Okay. Okay. So they have these poles with these signs up. And so um, back then, they used to be a little bit bigger. I guess people really were unable to see those signs. So they made them bigger. And so those, that was the basket. And so we used to shoot, just shoot against that and get really good at it. And then when we moved from, from the south side to Greenpoint, um, there, was a, there was a basketball court in the back. And I would always watch. I was watching you know, everybody was playing um, 21 or taps. Um, and then when they played, you know, they played three on three or five on five, they would beat each other up. And so um, they, they kept saying, come down, play, play. And so there was this one guy, Angel Rosado, and he ends up being like one of my brothers, even though it's from another mother, you would say, right? So it's just like just a good friend that ends up being a family member. So he, he kind of taught me the game. And so he protected me. And then it just became like, you know, they choose me because for some reason <clears throat> I had a good shot. But again, it was because I was always practicing against that one sign. Um, and, you know, everybody like shoot and try to hit the sign. And growing up, you always was competitive. You know, you play Skelsey or you play tag, but everything was competitive. And it was always the Garcias against everybody else. And, and it was, and because we were so competitive, um, they, you know, everybody tried to beat the Garcias, but somehow we won and I don't even want to know how we won, but we always said we won. So maybe we didn't win, but we won. So that was the kind of thing. And so, so it just stayed in me. And I remember, um, trying out for the high school team and I didn't make it. I didn't make the first two years because I didn't understand the game. Although I was playing it, I didn't understand, you know, the traveling part or even, a double dribble, you know, because we were playing street street ball for all my life. It wasn't until um, Coach McCarthy that took a chance with me, Brian McCarthy, and 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 he just saw that I could shoot. So he taught me the the final part of the game, you know, um, defense, and 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 he knew how fast I was, very fast. You know, they called me Speedy Garcia. <clears throat> Excuse me, Speedy Garcia, because I just like try to guard. And even when I would play for college. Um, I still still learning the game. It wasn't until I got a little bit older. And actually, I still think I'm still learning the game because I love watching pro ball and collegiate ball and see the difference of it. I, I constantly, I'm, I'm always teaching myself something new when it comes to the game. Um, so that's how we, we, we ended up. I'm the only one who ended up going to college to play basketball or sport. And so my family, you know, they came um, – I remember my first coaching, um, they all came and they, they sat, there's a section in St. Francis called the President's uh, Suite. They brought up coolers and they sat up their sandwiches and they were having music up in that corner. I was so embarrassed. Um, but, you know, now looking back, I just laugh and say, 
just typical Garcia move, you know, and just typical family. Did you did you ever fathom that you would be an athletic director? Um, was that ever in your mindset, um, or was it always just going to be teaching? Well, I knew that I would, I would be affecting many people, and I wanted to always work in groups. So maybe maybe all along I knew it was going to be AD, but I didn't know it was going to be AD. You know what I'm saying? It's like I know I know that what I what I teach now is as a teacher. You know, I'm a, I always tell our kids there's lessons. We're all, always teaching lessons. Um, so maybe teaching was my thing, right? So I, even as an athletic director. If you're not teaching, you know, what's the worth of seeing your kids succeed? Mm -hmm. And to me, it's not about memorizing, right? A good teacher doesn't allow you to memorize. They, when they teach, they want you to understand what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so the greatest thing is to watch a kid graduate, but also the growth from when they come in as a freshman to senior year, it's incredible. And, and, and as I see them grow, I, I just, I just, that's, that's my work. That's I feel like I could put a check, I'm a good teacher, or I can continue to learn and teach my kids. Um, so even as a, from coaching to administration, um, I was always, I, I mean, I, if, if someone says, Irma, did they challenge me? I'm, I love that, you know, going back to being competitive, right? If you give me an assignment, I'm going to, I'm going to try to do it the best I can. And then if you tell me I can't do it, I'm going to prove you wrong. So, that's the mentality I take with St. Francis in everything I do because it is challenging and it being a director of athletics is not easy um, because you're dealing with so many different aspects of the outside world, the inside world um, and teaching your kids and dealing with administration because not everybody is all for athletics, but that yet they're for athletics. If, if you can understand, they want you to be part of something bigger yet, you know, there's, there's some challenges, there's some pushback, some obstacles. Um, so I, I think I learned just do as much as you can to make a difference in their lives. And so even when, when they said, um, Hey, um, we need somebody to do this, um, academics, raise my hand, I'll do it. Somebody do financial aid. I, I got it. I got it. I'll, I'll learn and I'll, and I'll do it. Um, so it became much easier for me. So now when I'm teaching my young staff, um, I want them to use their voice. I want them to be engaging. I want them to be very creative because the, the mind, if you leave it where you just follow other people, you're not going to be creative. The, the idea of taking a, a place like St. Francis where we're Franciscan, it's our job to serve. It's ideal for me. And to teach that to young kids to serve as you go along, you're going to be the better person. It's incredible. So the journey for me has been easy. The only hiccup was when I did get the job, I just didn't know that it was all these different ways that you can do it. I've had some incredible mentors. And, you know, I don't know if you know Gloria Navarez. She's, in, uh, she's the West Coast Commissioner. She's Mexican-American. And she's the one, when we were at a, a leadership, she's the one saying, oh, I think you're the one. I think you're, you're the first Latina. I said, that's, in, that's in, no, it can't be. I mean, it's 2007. It can't be um, to find out I was. And so I've taken that challenge to, to help others. 
I don't want to be the first and I don't want to be the last one, but I do want more people to see the opportunities that I had and my opportunities because of family, because, you know, I've allowed not only my immediate family, but outside family to come in, in my world so I can learn from them and I could teach them as well. And then from there we navigate, right? We move around and we able to do some great things for great people. And, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that you had that same reaction too. Cause when I saw the year, I was like 2007, the first Latina, you know, it's, yes. it's the crazy, just the world we live in. Um, yes. And uh, I guess go a little bit more into that as far as being a pioneer and finding out after the fact, um, uh, you know, and, and, and kind of seeing that and saying, oh, we need more representation. Um, mm -hmm. And how important it is to you to um, kind of, like you said, mentor, you know, people of color, women of color, um, and, and just be that representation. Yeah, and, and also sponsor. You know, there is a difference between mentor and sponsor. Mentor, you, you just able to talk and ask questions and get some information, but a sponsor is really going to help you move, move the needle from, you being a young administrator and moving up to the next and then learning and putting you in position to meet other people that will help you mm -hmm. succeed and get that job. Um, and I think I'm at the point where I want to be more of a sponsor. I, I'm, I'm always going to be a mentor to young men, young women, uh, Latinas, um, black and brown. I mean, I can go on and on. I will always be there for anybody who needs that advice or needs some sort of uh, help. Mm -hmm. But I want to be that sponsor that can put people in position to succeed and get those jobs because I think that's where 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 we're needed most now, and that's the one thing we need to do is is just move the needle, keep moving the needle, and you know, yeah, they they talk about the glass ceiling. I we 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 go back and forth, we jump, we hit it, come back. I mean, the fact is 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 the follow-up and making sure that not only are we just helping and just giving advice, but putting young women of color in position to succeed. That That is more crucial to me now than it was just to mentor. And I, and I did that for many years and I will continue to mentor. And again, it's not just about mentoring young women, women of color, but also the young men, men of color as well. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I'm, that's where my, I think I'm in position to do something more in, in sponsoring young people to do, to, to, to be able to succeed. How, how far, how, how well have we done? You know, sometimes we think we're, we're headed in the right direction and then, you know, our country shows us that we're not quite there yet, <laughs> but 13 years later, um, how are we as far as representation for, you know, collegiate front office? Um, how, how well have we done? No, I mean, there's there's years that you think, oh, wow, this is the year. And then the following year you set back and and, you know, um, women tend to think that well, more. I can only speak more of a Latina. I mean, we're just not we were never put in position to to succeed in that way. We were positioned to listen more than to use our voice. And so. That is the barrier that we have to break. And, and start them young, not just, not just in college. College, I think it's late. I think we should start them in high school, even grammar school, and they should be taught that way, that use your voice, that your voice matters, and your voice is, is, is impactful. And as long as you're kind and using it because your heart is, you know, I talk about my heart all the time, filling my heart or using my heart. I used to, 
I used to make decisions based on head, my brain. And, and then I found out as, as I got older, when I used it for my heart, it becomes much easier to make better decisions. It really does for me. I don't know for anybody else, but every time we think we take two steps forward, we go back three. And so it's shame on us still. Right. Um, and so what can we do to make, make it impactful, make, make a dent and stay there and then continue. So I think we really need to learn to follow up, not just, Put somebody there and then, okay, good luck. No, it's your job also to make sure that you check up on that person. What do you need? Because women don't ask. They don't really ask for help. We got the mommy genes, right? We're supposed to be able to do 10 things at the same time. And they just don't ask for the help. And meanwhile, you know, they're, they need help. Um, so I think that's where we can do better. Um, you know, I'm seeing more women and women of color getting involved. I mean, we're getting more ADs of women in color. It's so exciting. I get so pumped. Um, and, and I just want them to do, you know, I'm, I'm at, um, I've, I've been doing this, what, 12 years? You know, and it's a long time. Most ADs don't stay that long. And I'll stay as long as they want me at St. Francis. Um, I think that's, that's my, my calling is to help kids who, who really need the help. But I see some young female women of color who are doing some extraordinary things. I'm a cheerleader. I'm like cheering for them. I want them to succeed and move, move the needle. But then they have to do the same thing. They have to not only mentor, but they have to sponsor young women and put them in position to, to really succeed. And they can. I think that's where the change is going to be. You know, we're hoping for change every day, right? There's so much going on in the world right now. Um, but you know, prayer is very important and we got to pray and we got to, prayer is not only going to do it. You really got to pick up that phone. You got to check in on people and you know, how can I help you? And, and we're all busy. Work is always going to be there, but, but I think, I think that's my calling is to really put people in position to be able to succeed. The Enfuego podcast is edited by Dylan Wren. I'm your host, Gabe Zaldivar. If you like the show, you can help support it in a tremendous way by liking, following, and subscribing across your favorite streaming services. Give a comment or a five-star rating. With your support, you're helping give some of sports' greatest stories the spotlight they deserve. Next week, we continue our mission with a little speed. We meet Mike Salinas and his daughters, Jasmine and Gianna. They make up the Scrappers Racing Team, a proud family business born of the trash heaps of San Jose. Enjoy your week. And make sure to find us online at si.com backslash enfuego.